0: This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Soon after Harriet Tubman liberated herself from slavery and became a conductor on the Underground Railroad, she met two white, wealthy women who became some of her most devoted friends. They were an odd match on the surface, but Harriet Tubman, Martha Coffin Wright, and Frances Seward were bound for life by their commitment to women's rights and the abolition of slavery. The story of their friendship is now told for the first time in a book called The Agitators. It's by bestselling author Dorothy Wickenden, who is also executive editor of The New Yorker. And she is with me now. Dorothy Wickenden, welcome. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Julia. It's great to be here. These three women are brought together by their convictions, but also by their ties to a town in central New York called Auburn. What was Auburn like in the mid-1800s? Auburn
1: was an early industrial city, and it was quite a happening place. So Auburn was is right in the center of New York State, and it was a really conservative town. They were uh, it was peopled by businessmen, bankers, uh, people who the, the railroad was about to come through that part of the state. These are people who wanted to make make money. There were lots of entrepreneurs. They wanted to make money, and they wanted they, they took great pride in their city, and they wanted it to be you know, a really uh, important hub of what would become modern America. So it was quite conservative, uh, very conservative overall. But one of the things that fascinated me was there were these pockets of extremism. And so two of my uh, protagonists, Francis Seward and Martha Coffin Wright, got together, got to know each other in 1840 when Martha moved to town and realized that they they were the only only women in town who shared uh, quite radical views about women's rights and abolition. And they they urged each other on and they shared books and pamphlets. And under the you know, under the surface, they were very re- extreme. Uh you know, real real abolitionists in 1840. Uh, Martha Coffin Wright opened her basement kitchen to fugitive slaves on the Underground Railroad. And then a decade later, once Francis Seward's father had died, he, he held uh, sway over the house for all of his life until he died. And once he died, Francis converted her original basement kitchen. Into a haven for fugitive slaves. So through their activities on the Underground Railroad, they met
0: Harriet Tubman. Were there a lot of fugitive slaves coming through Auburn on the uh, Underground Railroad?
1: Well, once Harriet Tubman began, began her operations, there were a fair number of them. It was Auburn was so strategically placed that it was a good stopping point uh, for people to rest and get, get some food, maybe uh, get a little bit of money to, before they continued on. And then they would continue west, uh, in, often into Rochester and also the co- countryside in between Rochester, Buffalo, and then up into ca- Canada, Free Canada. But Auburn, like, like many other cities, including Syracuse and Rochester, had quite a large free Black population. And these were people who had once been enslaved themselves. And of course, New York had abolished slavery sometime before. Uh, so, so people who had once been en- enslaved, many of them just settled in, in Auburn. And so it became a number of people who came, escaped on the Underground Railroad ended up staying in Auburn rather than continuing on because there was such a supportive black community. And a number, not many, but I would say half a dozen white uh, you know, members of the community were, were very supportive as well. Sub Rosa, because this was not something that you wanted to share with your
0: neighbors. So Harriet Tubman's travels as a as a conductor uh, guiding enslaved people to freedom uh, on the Underground Railroad bring her frequently through Auburn, and that's where she encounters Francis and Martha. And I want to talk a little bit about the paths that each of them take to um, to their activism. But but it's quite remarkable, and I think important to establish right from the beginning that this. This is not just a business association with Harriet Tubman either. I mean, I get the sense that that this actually is a is a genuine friendship that these women appreciated and um and and, and enjoyed each other's company. And Harriet ends up spending the, re- the her later years lives out her life in Auburn in large part because of that
1: friendship. Forty eight years she spent her life. And one of the things that was so fascinating about uh, as I did the research for the book was learning. Much more about Harriet Tubman. Of course, we all learned about her in grade school as this great hero on the Underground Railroad. All of that is true, but she was a, a fascinating, complex character, and she was one of her many gifts was for friendship. And she, once she trusted someone, uh, they, they, it was an, a lifelong friendship. And so, so there, there was that. And then she also, she. Uh, I'm trying to put this in a way that doesn't, doesn't make it sound too kind of uh, transactional, as we would say today. She she knew how to use her friends to her advantage. She had to. Look at what she was doing. And she one of the th- th- things that drove the spirit of this book is uh, my interest in people who, I, I like telling American history from a different perspective, not uh, stories about the acknowledged political powers, but the people who are totally powerless. So Frances Seward, who was this very wealthy woman and had for that, for that time an extremely good education, would seem, you know, an aristocrat, would seem to have nothing in common with a, a, a fugitive slave. Well, in fact, they were both, as was Martha, deeply religious. Uh, Harriet Tubman uh, never learned to read and write, but she had memorized long passages of the Bible, all three women, once the civil war came, believe they called it a holy war. And they all believed that God intended for the enslaved people to be freed. And that led all of them, you know, absolutely throughout their lives, along with their beliefs that women uh, were not equivalent to to enslaved people, but women had no powers at all. They were completely under the thumb, white women and let alone black women they were under the thumb of their husbands once once a woman married she had to give up if she had any property or money that she brought into the marriage it immediately became her husband's she became by the law his property and he could do anything to her that he wished including beating her up which many men did, did regularly and this was one of the things that really uh revolutionized Frances seward because her sister lazette who lived around the corner was the victim of a of a of, of of wife beating by her husband and Frances found it completely outrageous that divorce was out of the question for women. And that women, her sister Lizette said that if she could, she would leave her husband, if only she could take her daughter with her and she would go, she would cross the ocean to escape this terrible man, but she couldn't, she was trapped. So in a weird way, these women of different races and classes understood each other better than their husbands understood them because their experiences in some ways were quite similar.
0: I'm speaking with Dorothy Wickenden, who's executive editor of The New Yorker, author of a new book called The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. they really amazing. And until now... Largely untold story of Francis Seward, Martha Coffin Wright, and Harriet Tubman and their friendship. So let's do uh, a little bit of a close up on each of these three protagonists in your book, Dorothy Wickenden. You were just telling us about Francis St- Seward and uh, her her sister Lizette, who was beaten by her husband but trapped in an abusive marriage. Um, was that the uh, the thing that that turned Francis into? a... Uh, an advocate and activist for women's rights. It was. And uh, she was married,
1: I should say, because it's extremely important in her story. She was married to William H. Seward, whom Americans have heard of. He was uh, a U.S. senator for, you know, throughout the 50s, 1850s. And then when uh, Lincoln was elected, he became Lincoln's secretary of state, an extremely powerful politician, one of the most hated and revered politicians of the 19th century he was anti-slavery himself he believed notionally in women's rights he didn't always practice what he preached on women's rights and eventually his willingness because he was a politician his willingness to to seemingly moderate his beliefs on slavery led to a, extraordinary tensions in his marriage to Francis so she but so she was she was radicalized by this terrible experience that her sister had and then a couple of years later, when she was taking a trip with her husband and their and their uh, younger son into the South, a summer trip, they, they, they made their way by carriage into Virginia. And Frances was at that time, she was only, you know, when she married, she was only 19. So she was still a very young woman. And she, she was very opposed to slavery, but she had never been South. She had never seen it. And so they, they, were, they pulled up at a country inn one day and they heard the sounds of weeping and moaning, as she describes it in, in a journal entry. And they saw 10 little boys between the ages, she, she estimated of six and 10, being led by a long rope tied together, being led by a long rope and a whip by a slave driver who uh, led them to a horse trough to drink and then put them in a shed where they spent the night and saw themselves to sleep. And she wrote in her journal, slavery, slavery, you know, the terrible effects were constantly before me. And that experience led her to become an active abolitionist. So it took her, after they got back, it just took her a long time to kind of break out of the constraints, social constraints she had grown up in and her idea of what constituted being womanly and 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 act on her conscience. And so th- that dynamic, the kind of tug between what the way she had been brought up and what she felt she had to do to br- help bring this terrible, these two terrible situations to an end, that becomes a central tension of the book. And one of the fascinating things about the dynamic am- among the three women is the way each of them urged each other on. So each expressed herself politically in different ways, but they all believed absolutely in these same values. So Martha Coffin Wright, her friend around the corner, was a Quaker. Uh, and had she had been brought up to believe that women were absolutely intellectually and in every way equal to men. Very unusual belief at the time. And that slavery was an evil that had to be eradicated. So she, she also, though, uh, she, she was middle class, so she wasn't terribly wealthy. She had no one to help her with her housework. She had six children. And, and a typically demanding husband who came home at night and wanted her to you know do everything for him uh, after his very hard day at the office. And Martha just was a born rebel and she bridled at this. She didn't understand or think that it was right that women should be confined at the home. And she, she had had to stop her education when she was 15, but she was incredibly intellectually curious, very funny and sardonic. And she, so she comes to life in these letters that she wrote to her sister, uh, who was 14 years older and had helped to raise her. And that was Lucretia Mott, who was one of the most famous abolitionists and, and human rights advocates of the 19th century. Uh, and so many of Martha's views had been formed by Lucretia, who was a Quaker minister. So her, in her letters to Lucretia, she's very frank and angry about her situation at home, surrounded by these young children and feeling that she's never she's, she's never going to be able to get out from under. She's in 18, she and, and Lucretia were organizers of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. She was 41 and six months pregnant with her seventh child. Mm. So she at that point, she thought, well, this is the way it's always going to be. And I'll just become a grandmother and I'll be stuck at home. But at Seneca Falls, she meets Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass, who completely catalyze her in these two major movements of the nineteenth century, and her life is forever changed.
0: So she she is. Uh, you mentioned earlier that she converts um, her downstairs kitchen to a stop for uh, for for people escaping slavery uh, on the Underground Railroad. It, 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 was Martha Coffin Wright more sort of visibly active in the uh, movements for women's rights and abolition as, as compared to Francis, who, who, I guess, you know, had a reputation, had land, had been raised in Auburn, had a very famous, you know, and respected father, and who was married to, you know, governor, then senator, and then, you know, secretary of state. What, how did their outward participation compare?
1: Yes. So they were temperamental, even though they were they were such close friends, temperamentally, they were very different. Uh, And Martha, it took Martha a while, too, it has to be said, to to get the courage to, you know, go out in public with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, and start talking about some of these issues, which were, of course, Reviled, uh, so but but she had the personality for it and she and the and the gumption. Frances Seward w- was quite sickly. She had what today would be considered migraine headaches and and clinical depression, and she was very cerebral and she tended to uh, kind of I, I would say kind of uh, internalize her anger. Uh, she so she, she temperamentally she wasn't particularly well suited to going out and you know throwing. Bombs as, as Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Martha talked about what they were doing. But she absolutely supported all of it. And Sub Rosa, she, she was as active in her own way as Martha was in hers. So while Martha was out there organizing conventions for women's rights. And for for uh, the abolition of slavery, Francis was behind the scenes, constantly writing letters. She stayed in Auburn while her husband went to Washington, constantly writing letters to, to him, telling him he had to be true to his conscience and you know, stop making these political compromises that his advisor, his very wily advisor, Thurlow was was impressing upon him, and stand up for himself and the values that he had always, believed in, and so Seward found, who was a a, a fascinating character himself, he knew that he needed both the the pragmatic advice of Thurlow Weed and the very radical uh, advice of his wife, and she kept him abreast of, as the 1850s went on, as abolitionists grew in power and in numbers, and as women got out there making their own cause known, you know, there are much bigger ripples about the effect with the effects of these two movements. And he was in Washington, and Washington was a really southern town. Slavery was legal, and so Francis became his kind of political go-between. She would report to him on activities in New York. You know, big big conventions. Uh, there were a number of of, of fugitive slave rescues so once the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act passed it was legal for slave catchers from the south to go into states like New York uh, where slavery was had been abolished long since and and take back uh, free black people who had been living there for some of them for decades and Francis found and others even others who were not particularly politically active even conservative New Yorkers found this appalling. And so the atmosphere got more and more tense. And so there were uh there when slave catchers came in and and arrested the these people who were you know upstanding members of the community and tried to and tried to take them back. The, there were fugitive slave committees in all of these towns, including Auburn and Syracuse and Rochester and Troy, New York, with ve- very strong numbers of people who were activists. And they would, they would uh launch rescue operations, quite successful ones. Mm-hmm. So Francis was able to report all of this to back to Henry, as she called her husband, firsthand and so he got a sense of what how his constituents were changing and that helped him make his decisions about
0: just how open he should be and when about uh, about slavery So the Fugitive Slave Act was, as you described, a a radicalizing moment for many Northerners to really get on board with um, abolition. It also, you write, turned Harriet Tubman into a guerrilla operative. And so that's what we need to talk about next, how Harriet Tubman ended up meeting and becoming close friends with Martha and Francis in Auburn. But we do have to take a very quick break here. I'm speaking with Dorothy Wickenden, who is executive editor of The New Yorker. She's a bestselling author, and her latest book is The Agitator's Three Friends who fought for abolition and women's rights. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. It's really great having you with us today. I'm Julie Rose. We're talking about a remarkable friendship between three women who were bound together by their commitment to women's rights and to ending slavery in the mid and late 1800s. These women are Harriet Tubman, Martha Coffin Wright, and Frances Seward, the last two being white and women of relative means, especially compared to Harriet Tubman. and uh, Dorothy Wickendale, Has written a new book about their friendship. It's called *The Agitators*. Wickenden is executive editor of *The New Yorker*. So, tell us, Dorothy Wickenden, about Harriet Tubman's first encounter with Martha and Francis. What do we know about how they ultimately met in Auburn?
1: Yes, well, I have to admit that this is one of the rather frustrating parts of the research, you know, and every every. Everyone who does historical research has these moments. There is no written documentation of when Harriet Tubman met, met these two other women in Auburn uh, for sort of understandable reasons. I mean, people had to be extremely circumspect about their activities on the Underground Railroad. Martha tended to be later on, tended to be much more open. And so we I learned a lot from her letters about her relationship with Harriet. But Frances was, you know, by nature, you know, very, very. Uh, she kept kept her cards close to her chest. However, it is clear to me and as it has been to, to historians who have studied Lucretia Mott, her uh, Martha's older sister, that they met through Lucretia Mott. And so it's a great way to understand how the Underground Railroad worked. And it was kind of in this case, it was kind of part of the old girls network. So Harriet Tubman uh, liberated herself from slavery on the Eastern shore when she was 27 in 1849 An amazing story just on its own. She walked 100 miles to Philadelphia where she had learned, you know, through contacts she had made on the Underground Railroad through her parents who were active themselves and and others in their little community. And she got so that took a couple of weeks, and she got to, and she knew that Philadelphia was a city where there were there were a number of abolitionists uh, and it you could get a job as a, as a free black person. Uh, and they had schools for black children. And she loved hearing about the abolitionist meetings that took place. So she got to Philadelphia, she got a job, she found herself a room, and she immediately made herself known to every abolitionist in town. One of the most important of whom was Lucretia Mott. And she and Lucretia Mott actually had quite a bit in common, this older Quaker woman who had heard the inner voice. She believed that God, you know, told her, ex- expected her to do what was what was uh, moral and right. And uh, Harriet Tubman, who was a Methodist, who literally believed that God spoke to her and that he told her that she had to help her people. So they they became they became close friends and it becomes clear that when Martha visited her family a couple of times a year and on one of those visits
0: in Philadelphia, Lucretia. sorry, so so Martha Martha Coffin yes. Wright yeah. then was from Philadelphia, and that's where her older sister Lucretia was living. Exactly,
1: I'm st- I should have made that clear. Okay. So, and that's where uh, Martha had grown up, and she had other siblings there too, and her mother. But Lucretia was the real force uh, in in the family and in Martha's life, and so she always stayed with uh, Lucretia when she went down to Philadelphia. Clearly. Lucretia introduced Martha to this amazing young woman she had met Harriet Tubman, who was just beginning to think about her underground railroad extractions. And then they need, you know, people who were active on the underground railroad needed contacts everywhere, uh, certainly along the routes they were going to be following regularly. And Auburn was this perfect place. And there were these two women who were ideal contacts for Harriet Tubman. So she got, she Harriet got to know Martha through Lucretia, and then Martha introduced Harriet Tubman to Francis in Auburn, and they so that those two houses became regular stops for Harriet Tubman on the Underground Railroad, and so they were they started out as colleagues, political colleagues, but immediately became very close. They respected each other. They 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 goaded each other. And I think to the two white women who were such advocates of these ideals, their friendship with this remarkable young woman was a real a real driving force in in the work that they themselves did on on behalf of not only of fugitive slaves but on trying to upend this entire system of slavery. So that's what really interested me. And again, they had no power at all to change anything. And yet, look at what Harriet Tubman did, and and she was she was I would say she's incomparable and in, she's just such a remarkable figure in every way. So the the other women, it's not as though they did anything remotely like what she did, but together they they helped make each other's work possible. So just quickly, uh, in 1859, Francis Seward decided so. By then, Harriet Tubman had been active on the Underground Railroad for for almost a decade. She had been down to the Eastern Shore a dozen times. She had rescued about 70 people including her entire family and taken them up to Canada. And she had Tubman had a really strong family sense, so did Francis. They clearly talked about this Harriet Tubman's uh, parents were elderly and frail, and it was they were they hated living up in Canada so far away and it was so cold. And so, Frances came up with this idea that she had inherited this property from her father. By then, a, a law had been passed in New York, which made the property Frances's and not her husband's. And she decided to sell a house and seven acres a mile down the road. To Harriet Tubman, a fugitive slave. And this is a woman, you know, these two women engaging in this real estate transaction, which was a very, very unusual thing to do and quite uh, totally illegal. So that that took place. And then just to, to complete the story, because you mentioned Harriet Tubman becoming this guerrilla operative during the Civil War. Once the war broke out and the Underground Railroad activities of everyone had stopped Tubman decided she had this house now in, in Auburn. She had moved her family there, but she was not remotely cut out to be, you know, sit around and work the farm and take care of her family. So she got her contacts. She had a number of very important abolitionist contacts in Boston, as well as in New York and Philadelphia. Again, great at forming these incredibly lasting and important friendships. She got an audience with the abolitionist governor of Massachusetts who gave her permission to go down to Port Royal, South Carolina, which had had just been uh, uh, taken over by the Union Army, and she took part in the Port Royal experiment, which was a kind of public-private partnership to help 10,000 of slaves who had just been liberated and were there and needed needed help to get become self-sufficient. She helped with that effort. But her real she told Martha before she left that she was going to perform a secret service down there. And she did. She got to know the Union generals. She made herself invaluable to them by organizing a band of scouts. And they would scope out the territory to see, because they were surrounded on three sides by. The Confederate Army. They would figure out where the the Confederates were positioned, and then and then launch the, a series of river raids, which Harriet Tubman took part in and be played a very important role in, uh, according to the intelligence that Harriet Tubman delivered to these generals. So, this was an incredible thing too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were the the first black troops of the war were were being mustered. In South Carolina, Tubman is watching all of that happen. Of course, she totally approves of that. She thinks the war can't be won until black men are allowed to to fight for their country. And she wants to take part and she figured out a way to do it.
0: Meanwhile, her elderly parents are living on the property that she purchased from Francis Seward a mile down the road and being watched after. Giving her a bit of a, a bit of peace of mind, right, because Francis and Martha are both there in Auburn. Uh, during the war. And Francis and Martha both have sons. Well, I mean, we should say that Francis's husband is now Secretary of State. He's one of two signatories on the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, he's part of Lincoln's inner circle, first trying to prevent the war and then, you know, sort of managing that process politically. Um, and Francis and Martha both have sons who get injured in the, in the Civil War.
1: Yes. And and Martha's son, uh, Willie, she told him before he left Auburn that uh, he should die before returning a single slave to slavery. I mean, this woman was one tough customer. And of course, she was anguished by the idea of him being on the front lines. And he, w- the, I had devote a chapter to Gettysburg because uh, Willie took part in the Battle of Little Round Top quite heroically. Uh, and there's a plaque there uh, commemorating his his unit. Uh, and it's just an amazing story. And then, this is one of the things that I love about telling this kind of history because I went to through all of the uh, letters and personal documents that I could find that that showed Willie's part in that battle and Martha's response when she hears he gets injured and it's he, she at first thinks he's lost his life. It's completely harrowing. Uh, so so there's that and then Francis's one of Francis's sons also takes part he takes part in two battles one of them that, uh, and, and in one of them he almost gets killed but these women you know they stood by their beliefs they 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 couldn't not have their their son even though it was possible to to buy your way out of serving at the front they believed their sons had to do what these other young men were doing and and fight in their holy war
0: and how much influence do you think Francis had on her husband's views, given that he was in the room where it happened? He was there with Lincoln.
1: You know, he totally respected her and really listened to her and thought that the abolitionists were incredibly important, uh, an incredibly important force. Obviously, they they really sort of brought, brought the war on. But he, like Lincoln, at, from the beginning of the war— were emphatic that this was a war to save the Union, not to emancipate the slaves. And as I mentioned earlier, this was a source of real contention between the two of them and their letters back and forth, which previously hadn't been written about, are are extraordinary and so you see what i loved about them was you saw it from two different perspectives and i I kind of understood it i definitely understood it from francis's perspective who found who felt her husband was not being true to his values but i also sort of understood it from from the perspective of seward and and lincoln because they were politicians and politicians have to take into account how far along the country is on certain issues when do you make certain moves and how do you make them so lincoln didn't believe that he had the right as president to liberate the slaves because that because of the constitution and he just he he just didn't he didn't want to alienate the slaveholding states that had not left the union because if he lost those states then the confederates would definitely win the war so the and so seward kept trying to tell francis this in the letters and she simply wouldn't hear it she said how can you say that saving the union is more important than saving the lives of millions of human beings and you know you are going to go to a dishonored grave like Daniel Webster, whom both of them despised because (laughs) Daniel Webster had been all for the compromise of 1850. And that was a really cruel blow to her husband to be compared to Daniel Webster. But she really passionately believed this.
0: I'm speaking with Dorothy Wickenden, who's executive editor of The New Yorker and a best-selling author. Her latest is The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. After the Civil War and the abolition of slavery, uh, Harriet Tubman's work on the Underground Railroad comes to an end. It's no longer necessary. But their friendship between these three women um, persists. What is it built on after the war?
1: Yes, well, I I don't want to uh, spoil the end of the the end of the book Francis dies tragically uh before her time uh Martha lived on for qu- quite a long time and Harriet Tubman this this totally unstoppable force lived into the 20th century mm. so she when Tubman Tubman stayed on uh in South Carolina and then after sort of as the war was winding down she went to one of the Union hospitals in Virginia to tend to uh, African-American soldiers who were being really, really badly treated in Union hospitals. And they needed they needed nurses to, to help, which is what she did. Um, she eventually did have to go home. She did have this family she needed to, to help take care of. So she went back to Auburn. She devoted the rest of her life, in her early years back in Auburn, she continued to work on behalf of the people of South, freed people of South Carolina and other people in the South making sure that you know gathering donations and and clothing and you know any number of things that were desperately needed to help help people kind of get started on a new life she also was very active in the women's suffrage movement and she she joined the the group founded by elizabeth katie stanton and susan b anthony and martha coffin wright and she fought she continued Continued to speak publicly about the rights of women and the rights of of black people, and she basically spoke to any. She was completely non denominational. She would speak to any group that asked her, uh, and, and so there were growing tensions after the war between white women and black women, and uh, that some of it got very ugly. Somehow Tubman kind of rose above that and didn't get entangled in it. Uh, Martha. Did to her regret she, that was you know something that she found exceedingly um, uh, discomforting. Uh, so, but she Mar- Martha and Harriet Tubman saw each other all the time because they lived they lived you know within walking distance of each other. And Tubman did not get paid for her work with the Union Army because it was it was she had kind of created this position for herself, and so she wasn't officially. A member of the Union Army, and so she was quite poor. And Martha and other member and members of Harriet Tubman's family and the Seward's helped her out financially. But she, she, she was this completely selfless person who felt that she, whatever she earned, she would give away because there was always someone who needed the money more than she did. Just, just remarkable. Mm-hmm. And she kept working almost until the day she died. She lived into her early 90s. And her final project, as she called it, was building a home for elderly, indigent African-Americans on the property she had bought from Francis Seward. And it took her decades to raise the money for that uh, undertaking. But she did. She did it. And this woman (laughs) succeeded in everything she set out to do. And so before she died, this this uh, home was built and was running. And in fact, she she died in the home she had built herself for for
0: other African-Americans. Finally, Dorothy Wickenden, um, what does this friendship, what can it teach us? What lessons are there for us today? it i what it kept saying to me as i as i
1: worked on this book over the years is there there are ways they showed us and others like them there were many others like them showed us how what what are the sort of uh, fundamental principles and methods of political organizing and if they could do it <laughs> These women who had, you know, really nothing; they they were starting from nothing. It's completely possible to launch these grassroots movements today, and the the issues that they fought against, including, you know, uh, domestic abuse, uh, the the uh, uh, white supremacy. Look, we just saw it at the Capitol in, in on January sixth, uh, the po- white police officers killing black men. So what we've seen in recent years is some modern equivalents of what these women were doing. The Me Too movement at long long last, you know, uh bringing down men who had been um ab- grossly abusing women for for gen- for, for you know, decades. And and Black Lives Matter and other groups like them, v- voting rights organizations, because voter suppression is now, you know, a big danger in in many states across the country. So all of these groups are extremely active and quite powerful. We saw the effects of them in the recent elections in Georgia. We, you know, George, Georgia, Georgia <laughs> elected two Democratic senators, and that was all thanks to the kinds of grassroots efforts that the descendants uh, and today's uh, uh, um, equivalents of these women have been engaged, the activities they've been engaged in.
0: Dorothy Wickenden is executive editor of The New Yorker and a bestselling author, and her latest book is The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. Thanks for your time today, Dorothy. It was nice talking to you. Thank you, Julie. A pleasure. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Remember how we used to find our way around an unfamiliar place with a map spread out on the passenger seat? And then there was MapQuest, but you still had to print out the directions and hope you didn't make a wrong turn. Now there's just GPS guiding us in real time, which is awesome for not getting lost. But what's happening to the part of your brain that specializes in navigation and also just happens to be really important for memory? Our reliance on GPS might be weakening our memory skills as we age, says neuroscientist Dane Clemenson. He's on the line. Hi there, Dane. Welcome. Thanks for having me. What is the connection between navigation skills and memory?
2: Yeah, so if we think about memory, um, you know, if you think about an event that's happened to you, a birthday party, a trip that you've gone to, um, you know, if you had to describe that memory to someone, you could pretty simply describe it as, you know, who was there, what happened, when it happened, and where it happened. So this where part of that memory is kind of what we consider spatial memory. And it's something that we do all the time. If you were to take a trip to a new place, uh, if you live in a new city in a new country, you kind of have to learn about your surrounding environment. And our brain has kind of always you know, kept track of that surrounding environment in order for us to not get lost. So we have this kind of very specialized network of neurons in our hippocampus that helps us learn about space. Um, so that's basically kind of the connection.
0: And, and what is the... What is the problem with GPS? You know, if I turn on the directions on Google Maps and it tells me line by line where I need to turn, how does how is that using or not using that spatial skill? yes yeah,
2: so, so the difference is actually, it's not really about the tools that we use, but it's, it's more about active versus passive navigation. And you can think of it in terms of active learning versus passive learning. So, you know, if you are learning to do a new skill, learning to ride a bike, um, it's one thing to watch somebody else ride a bike and try and learn from that. You can definitely get some information from that, but if you truly want to learn how, you have to do it yourself, right? You have to take an active role in your own learning. And it's the exact same way with with navigation. Um, You know, when you go to a new city, when you learn a new uh, area that you've never been to before, the best way to really kind of learn it is to explore it, is to go out there and walk around and to figure out where things are and to make mistakes, right? Those are kind of important for the learning process. Um, the difference is that when we follow something like GPS, when we follow turn by turn directions, it doesn't really take you, you know, you don't really use your brain at all. It doesn't take mm. any kind of power to really just follow a set of directions. It tells you to go right. You go right. It tells you to go left. You go left. And so, um, that's really kind of the difference. It's a matter of passive navigation versus active navigation. And
0: so are you, uh, are you arguing that my memory of that place will be weaker because I wasn't finding my way? Or yes. are you ar- okay? But you're not arguing that my memory of other stuff is gonna be weaker because I'm not uh, exercising the navigational skill.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's a little bit of a balance. You know, it's hard to say. Um when we use GPS navigation, when we use these term by turn term by term directions, we're really not engaging our brain. And you know, if you use it once or twice, that's really not going to have an effect. But, you know, if you have a lifetime, you know, something to consider is that if you have a lifetime of this, you know, what is the point of having these kind of really sophisticated brain processes if we're not really going to use them? Um, and I think that's kind of the argument. And, you know, we study the hippocampus in memory, and it's one of those areas which we know is highly susceptible to memory loss and memory impairment with things like Alzheimer's and, and dementia and aging. And um, we know that one of the best ways to combat that is to be kind of protective, right? Is to kind of catch it before it happens. You know, we should use our brain. We should go outside and exercise. We should eat well. We should, you know, get good sleep and stuff like that. And so it's kind of a lifestyle change. So, so you, know, you think uh, that? The-
0: so do you think that uh, exercising that spatial navigation skill, you know, setting aside the GPS and sort of wandering with a paper map in your hands that that is actually a good way uh like a better way to exercise that part of the brain than to do memory exercises uh
2: yeah i I do think so i I think it's a great way that we kind of uh keep active and keep exercising um our brain you know and um you know it's again if we go to a new city if you're living kind of a new place The best way to kind of learn about that city is to go out there and walk around and and experience it yourself. And that's also going to be good for your brain. You know, you're going to see new experiences. You're going to see new things. um, You're going to have new experiences. And all those things are going to kind of be positive rather than just, okay, let me put in a set of directions. And then, you know, you just kind of blindly follow it. I mean, you know. You will kind of learn things as you go along, but it's not going to be the same as if you kind of experience it firsthand.
0: You've also found that navigating in a 3D game world like Minecraft or Super Mario Brothers or something where you go into this world and you kind of have to figure out where you are in relation to the other stuff there and like how to get from one place to the other,
2: that that also
0: activates the same part of the brain. And does that have um, benefits for memory, memory skills as well?
2: Yeah, I can. Um, So we've done a number of research, you know, modern video games have come a long way and oftentimes they kind of revolve around these huge open world environments. And in order to be good at these games, in order to be successful in these video games, you really have to have a good spatial understanding. You have to know, Oh, this is how I get back home. This is, you know, where I get certain supplies. This is where enemies are coming from. And so in the same way that we use our brain to navigate real world space, uh, we also use it to navigate and we create these kind of mental maps of virtual space as well. So our brain kind of doesn't really seem to care.
0: You and some colleagues recently experimented with uh, adding a bit of the spatial discovery back into a GPS type yes. thing. Yes. <laughs> Navigational yes. thing. And you used audio. Can you can you explain that for me?
2: Yeah. So um, this is an app that was developed by Microsoft. So this was developed before me. <laughs> And uh, it's essentially kind of a auditory beacon system, an auditory GPS system. Um, it was originally designed for people who are blind or have low vision. And so it was kind of a way for them to put in you know, headphones and to kind of learn a little bit more about their surrounding. Um, so the way it works is it use, uses what we call auditory beacons, right? So imagine that if you lived in a city and there's a port nearby, you might kind of hear um, you know, the horns of the boats, you know, and you kind of get that auditory cue, like even if you can't see it, even if you're separated by blocks and buildings and structures and all that stuff, you can hear it and you can tell where it's coming from, right? And immediately, you know, okay, the ocean is that direction. Mm. Um, And so it's the same kind of thing. When you put on the headphones and you use this app, you can pick any sort of location that you want to go visit, um, you know, uh, a special point of interest, a site, or even just a local pharmacy or something. And you can plug that into the phone and it kind of gives you this, um, auditory heading, uh, this auditory compass of where you need to go rather. So instead of pointing North, it's just going to point or tell you exactly, you know, the direction that you need to head.
0: Like follow your ears. We have a clip exactly. of some of the audio that you provided with the scientific study. Let's listen. Okay, so that might be what I'm hearing then in the headphones as I'm navigating toward, let's say, the park that I'm trying to find. Um, Does it get louder when I get closer? Is this like the hot, cold game that you play when you're trying to find something and people are like? Um,
2: Yeah. So, So the thing to understand, too, is it changes depending on your heading. So if you are facing a certain direction. And the location that you want to uh, get to is on your right hand side, you will hear that beep coming from the right hand side. So it actually changes Uh. depending on uh, how you're rotated. Does that make sense? Okay, so So, it's
0: it's in stereo. It's like you're in a 3D. Interesting. But how do I know I'm getting closer?
2: or do I Um it will it will start to make different different noises. There are features of the app that actually give call outs. so to actually say the names of locations and tell you kind of when they're when you when you've arrived um, but for the purpose of this study, we actually turned all of that off.
0: And so um, what advantage would a system like this have rather than having the system tell me turn left in three in three paces, you know, or go to the next corner? If I'm just following the audio, what what, what does that do for me that's
2: better? Yeah. I, again, remember, it's, it's kind of like this difference between active versus passive navigation. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're given the set of directions, you just follow them blindly and just kind of go and end up where you need to be. Um, the difference is with these auditory cues, it tells you the general heading of where you need to go, but it doesn't tell you how to get there. So you have to take an active role and say like, okay, so there's obviously the, you know, the place I want to get to is obviously on the other side of this building on the other side of the structure. Um, okay, so how do how am I going to get there? Uh, should I turn left and kind of go around it? Maybe I'll try that. And you may not always make the right choice right you may make a mistake hit a dead end end or hit a fence
0: or something right but if you
2: imagine doing this over and over and over again you know let's say you had to find 10 different locations um within a city and you know and you are making mistakes but eventually you will kind of learn the connection between these these different kind of locations right you'll start to recognize new places like oh I've been here before. I walk past this place. You know, this is how they connect. Yeah. And you will kind of, that's exactly kind of how we form this mental map of space.
0: Although, I, I, could that work? Could an audio system like that work if I'm driving? It makes sense if I'm walking,
2: <laughs> but if I'm driving yeah. at
0: 30 miles an hour, I don't know how that's going to work. Yeah, you
2: know, and, and sometimes you know in all honesty in today's life you just need to get somewhere right you don't really care about learning the city and you know maybe it's not that important and you just kind of need to get somewhere and so you turn on the directions and that totally makes sense you know we're, we're not kind of advocating that this should be an absolute replacement for that or that you know we should get rid of this technology as a whole because that's that's not what we're saying um really the point about it is to really be conscious that you know the way that we interact with technology can have an impact on our brain. And so we need to be conscious about that when we're creating new technologies, when we're designing new technologies. And so I think that's kind of the main point about it. Hmm.
0: Um, can, I, can I get just the same benefit uh, just by sort of struggling with a paper map, do you think, without having to use – like does adding the audio piece of it do something additional rather than
2: just visual cues? Um, I think the, the nice thing about the audit, the auditory thing is that it's a constant uh, beacon that is always there, right? Mm. Um, oftentimes, so you if you have s- a map, right, you have to consult the map, and you have to, again, figure out kind of where you are within the map. And uh, you, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, you're still kind of taking that active role, you're constantly kind of aware of your surroundings and where you are and trying to place yourself within those maps. You know, that's all part of navigation, um, the difference is that this soundscape app, you know, is, is kind of constantly giving you those updates. Hmm.
0: It seems like you could do the same thing, but with visual, you just wouldn't have the audio piece of it. If I know I'm going to the church and I can see the bell tower, yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know,
0: and I just sort of like work my way towards that.
2: Yeah. And that's exactly how we do it. Right. Um, you know, you look for certain landmarks or cues, a mountain range, you know, an ocean or something and you say, okay, well, I know it's kind of in this corner, you know, uh, whatever that might be, but that's exactly how we navigate.
0: Dane Clemenson is a neuroscientist. Really interesting work. Thanks a lot for your time.
2: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. We're online at byuradio.org slash top of mind. For more conversations like you've heard today, I'm Julie Rose. Ciara Hewlett, Cleon Wall, and Kyle Remond produced the show. Today's episode was curated from Top of Mind's vast archive of past conversations. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of our favorites. You can find more, lots more, from Top of Mind on the free BYU Radio app. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.